Hi everyone, welcome to This Is Lassonde, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lassonde community and beyond. My name is Denise and I'll be your host for today's episode. So sit back, relax, be inspired and learn something new with us. Today on This Is Lassonde, we're bringing you a special episode in honor of World Water Day, an annual United Nations observance held on March 22 that highlights the importance of freshwater and advocates for the sustainable management of freshwater resources. Joining us today, we have two civil engineering faculty members, Dr. Satinda Brar and Dr. Usman Khan, who are doing impactful work relating to water research and supporting UN SDGs in the areas of clean water and sanitation and climate action. We will hear about what types of things are contaminating Canada's water sources, from pharmaceutical toxins to microplastics and brewery waste, and learn how value-added bioproducts can help clean our water systems. We will also learn about the impact of climate change on urban water systems, leading to increased flooding in large city areas like Toronto, and how changes to urban planning can reduce flooding while also creating more sustainable communities. Welcome, Dr. Bra. How are you doing today? Fine. Thank you so much, Denise, for having me today for the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. So before we get into the more serious stuff, I'd like you to start by introducing yourself. So can you let us know who you are and what kind of work you do here at York? Yes. So you know my name, Satinder Kaur Brar. I'm professor and love chair in environmental engineering. Um, my work at York University comprises adding value to the waste as well as removing pollutants in a sustainable and green and lean manner from the waters, as well as from the soils. Nice. So I want to shift our focus back to World Water Day a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to start talking about your research, which I know is heavily focused on water and water systems. So why did you choose to work in water systems specifically and like your um, field of research? Like what question are you aiming to answer? Okay, first and foremost, I would say it starts at the very foundation of water being, you know, essential and elixir of life. So it's been almost 20 years now that I had my interest arose in water contamination. I was a grad student in one of the chemical laboratories in India. And I remember we used to do these manufacturing and synthesis in chemical industry. You produce those chemicals. And I always used to ask question as to what happens to all the solvents that we use during the process. Are they just drained into the water stream and are they treated? Well, just to let you know, I did my master's somewhere in 1999. So at that point, there was no treatment. They were just draining the solvent directly into the drain. And you know, when I, I'm talking about solvents here, it pertains to the solvents, which are mostly toxic, like benzene, toluene, et cetera, uh, which are known to be carcinogenic. And they were known to be carcinogenic at that point of time as well. So I think that is what I would say first time instilled the interest in me to go for environmental engineering, you know, rather than continuing my path in the chemistry direction, because my basic background is chemistry. But fortunately, my chemistry helps me, you know, connect many dots in environmental engineering to get to the root of the problem and then, you know, have a solution as well. So that's how my interest started in the water systems. And I think ever since having done my graduation in environmental engineering and then my did my PhD in Canada in biochemical engineering, I've been pursuing mostly waters, wastewaters, their treatment, decontamination, or even adding value to the waste 
which indirectly, you know, diverts the pollution of waters and sort of, you know, adds value to those resources. You know that once we produce any kind of waste, um, be it municipal solid waste, it could be the brewery industry produces spent grain. After the beer is produced, there is spent grain, which is almost 30% of the total mass of waste that is produced by a brewery industry. So what does the brewery industry do with that is simply they will turn it over to some organizations who take it for free and they are composting these wastes. But then at some point, these organizations or these conservation authorities, they don't take the waste and then the brewery industry has to rely on other means to divert this waste. So here, for example, our research can come handy. We'll use that spent grain. We will put the microorganisms on that spent grain to grow. And these microorganisms, they would grow and consume the spent grain and indirectly produce uh, the byproducts such as enzymes. And these enzymes could be further recirculated in the brewery industry, for example, for the clarification of beer. The beers need to be clarified and mostly filtration systems are used for doing that. But in this case, if the same waste which is produced by the brewery industry could be, you know, in some way added value and then produce another byproduct which could be recycled back into the industry through what we call as the circular economy approach, then, you know, we are adding value. And at the same time, we are serving the same industry again. So this is what value addition means. And this is just taking an example, but there are many such examples where we can use this approach. Okay, so um, from your example, this is kind of like recycling and repurposing these waste materials. Yeah, right? yeah, okay, yeah. perfect. That's interesting. Um, so I want to move back a little bit into what you mentioned earlier on about the toxins and carcinogens you spoke about. So what are the most dangerous and common kinds of toxins that are contaminating water systems in Canada right now? And what kind of threats do they pose for Canadians and to the environment at large? I think the ones that I mentioned just now, what we call as BTEX or benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, they are also major contaminants in the water sources. And you would have seen all the petroleum spills or even the oil sands in Alberta. They contribute to the contamination of water through the BTEX. Uh, I'm mentioning henceforth as BTEX, um, the acronym. BTEX is also found in the groundwaters, okay? Because through the contaminated soil, the BTEX leaches into the groundwater. Finally, the groundwater again gets contaminated with BTEX. So these are the contaminants. Then we also have in Canada what we call as cyanotoxins or algal toxins, which is produced by algae. And we know that in the Great Lakes, you know, especially Lake Erie has been heavily contaminated with many of these algal toxins. And uh, we should not forget <laughs> another class of contaminants, what we call as the contaminants of emerging concern, such as endocrine disruptors, pharmaceuticals, plasticizers, and now we have microplastics. All these are also of major concern for us here in Canada. Now, why am I saying these contaminants of emerging concern are important? Because we don't have any regulations per se to control their uh, limits into the waters, which is, however, not the case with BTEX. BTEX is an established contaminant. So there are limits imposed on their release into the water sources. So everybody knows, you know, after this limit, it becomes toxic. But in the contaminants of emerging concern, the toxicity is chronic and very low concentrations pose this toxicity. When I say very low concentrations, I mean the concentrations would be ranging from micrograms to nanograms. 
and they are pretty low, you can understand. So you need sophisticated instrumentation to analyze these contaminants at, at uh, these low concentrations. So what you are saying from what I understand is that um, even at very low concentrations, these toxins can cause grave damage that we may not even know um, at this point of time, like how much damage we are talking about here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, many of these contaminants of emerging concern, the damage you would not see, probably we would not see in our generation, we would see it in the next generation. Okay, especially for mothers when they're pregnant, the infants are getting, you know, the load of those contaminants, and it would be expressed more in that uh, child, you know, during their adulthood, perhaps because it is getting concentrated over a period of time. So what I mean to say, some of these contaminants are inherited by the future generation unknowingly, okay? And since it is not expressed in our lifetime for us, we don't see any uh, damage from it, which is not the case. And we have to remember that since you cannot analyze, so sometimes in the regular municipality framework, many of these contaminants, they just go undetected. Because we don't have any regulations for them, so the municipalities are not obliged to do any kind of analysis around these uh, trace contaminants, what we call. That's actually quite alarming. And where do you see your research and findings going um, in the near future? Okay, so currently my research group is working on a burning problem of these contaminants of emerging concern. Uh, because there are tons of them in the water bodies. So it's when you're working in a laboratory setup, you would be probably studying one kind of pharmaceutical or one kind of plastic or, but then we have all of them mixed together in the water body. So we are trying to see now, how do these mixtures behave under those real conditions? Let's say I study an antibiotic in a, antibiotic is a pharmaceutical, so I study it in a, in an ideal lab condition, probably I would receive, you know, my findings could prove that something is highly toxic. But then if these antibiotics, when they're coexisting with other contaminants in the water body, then probably their interaction with other contaminants, which are present in the water body, could even lead to much more toxicity or even persistence. This is, for example, we are proving now in the case of antibiotics, especially in wastewater treatment plants, so here I would like to add a point to you that most of my research is on real water systems. So we are not just limiting ourselves to spiked or fortified samples. We are rather bringing the wastewater, surface waters from the field and you know doing our tests in them. So currently we are, for example, we are working on antibiotics and we see that in the wastewater systems, I'm sure you're aware of, there are many heavy metals. And when these antibiotics, they complex with the heavy metals, they form complexes since they're organic compounds, it leads to enhanced toxicity. Sometimes the toxicity could be 10 to 100 times compared to the antibiotic as a standalone contaminant. Likewise, their persistence or what we call in scientific terms, their half-life, that also increases in the water bodies because of this kind of interaction. So this takes time to study. This is what we are doing presently, you know, uh, in our lab to understand how they interact. And at the same time, of course, uh, since we are in the environmental field, you know, my background is just not enough to cover the entire landscape of toxicity or proving the, you know, what kind of interactions. So I would say I've been very fortunate that I've had a very collaborative team of researchers 
across the country and uh, across the globe who participate in many ways in our, all our research projects where, for example, we might need an ecotoxicologist who would prove what is the toxicity of this kind of interaction in the ecosystem. So then I would rely on their information because we don't have that kind of expertise or background. Likewise, if we have to do some statistical modeling, you know, to understand in future, what would it entail in terms of their toxicity being expressed over a period of time, then I even rely on my colleagues who are in mathematics or statistics department. So long story short, environmental field is quite big. <laughs> so you cannot work in your own silo. You have to interact with many different collaborators. And I think that makes it exciting at the same time because you learn from everybody. So I think that's why I enjoy working in the environmental engineering field. It sounds like quite the complicated and collaborative effort is needed there. <laughs> yes, it's exciting. At the same time, it becomes, it's not easy to manage, but I think you learn many other things, not only scientifically, but as well as how to work in a team, you know, there are many other skills, soft skills, which the students learn as a part of the team and even the researchers. So I think that's required in today's world, not only in terms of research, but otherwise also, you know, to understand the needs. And uh, one more thing I would like to add, because I work with my collaborators across the globe, so you can understand from one country to another, the culture changes. And that changes many things in the research. This is beyond science I'm speaking, okay? So sometimes you have to learn and understand now how to translate this knowledge into that landscape. You know, I cannot just work in a square and say that, okay, this is the cause and effect. This is how it will happen in your environment as well. In other words, you have to be a good listener as well, you know, when you're doing research, not just speaking all the time. All right. Thank you. I really love that. It sounds like um, it really forces you to speak many languages outside of your own in a exactly. metaphorical sense and maybe sometimes even literal. So, yeah, what I want to ask you next are what are some of the social implications that access to clean water or the lack thereof has had on society or has on society? I think uh, the biggest social implication which I can gauge, especially when I have collaborated with my colleagues in even in Canada, we see that now, but I'm just translating from Asia and uh, I've worked in Africa with my colleagues. I think it affects their living standard. People don't realize that because imagine if somebody doesn't have access to drinking water, which we take for granted in Canada, although we understand now that even in Canada, in the remote communities, the indigenous people, everybody knows now, do not have access to the water. And I think this was two days ago, again, Ikaluit, their water is contaminated. So imagine this, of course, happens here as well, but I'm just bringing it down from there. So I have seen this affects families on a large scale, especially I've seen, I think 50% of their time is spent in getting water. So you can imagine how much resource or time of a person is going just to get access to the water. And it also affects the income of the family as a whole then, because one person is spending the entire time just getting access to the water. So socially, I would say uh, something which should be free for all uh, <laughs> has become an, um, you know, an expensive uh, entity, which is not good, I feel. Okay, so it should be like the air we breathe. We should also have, you know, clean drinking water everywhere. 
So that is what, uh, what is expected. Um, but this is not the case. Coming back now to Canada, I think it's the same thing, same story, uh, unraveling in the Indigenous communities and even in the north of Canada, accessibility to water is a big problem. And it is a big onus on the family to have that because you can imagine, I would probably bring a very uh, simple, you know, thumb rule here. One can live without food for two weeks, but you cannot live without water after 48 hours. 48 hours is your limit. So you can imagine how important then water is. So I think socially speaking, it's an important preoccupation. I think it's a duty of everybody, not just the people who don't have access, but the people who do have access to appreciate what they get and try to, you know, put in all the efforts if possible, because always control at source is the most important thing. Once something is contaminated, then it takes huge efforts and huge dollars, <laughs> a lot of money, you know, to clean it up. Maybe probably if you put in some money into the awareness campaigns, like at school stages at the present time, probably it would cost less for the government than spending billions of dollars later for cleanup. So that's what I think is required on any national front anywhere. It sounds like water access truly is a global issue at this point. And I think now would be a good time to talk about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So as I'm sure you're aware, the UN SDGs are very important to Lassonde, um, creating a positive change in developing strategies and global solutions to global challenges are part of what we do here at Lassonde. So I know your work ties into a few of these SDGs, um, specifically the sixth and the 13th one are what I want to talk about today. Um, so the sixth one is clean water and sanitation. Can you please talk a little bit more about these? So clean water and sanitation, as I just mentioned to you earlier, our research is focused on, first, I would say for many of the new contaminants, the contaminants of emerging concern that I mentioned to you, the first and foremost step for us is to you know, develop the detection methods for those contaminants, because there are no detection methods for all the contaminants. And remember, I'm always talking about the real samples. Okay. So that is the first step. And once we have established a proper detection method, then we go to understand the fate and transport of these contaminants as to how do they behave in a wastewater treatment plant train or how do they behave in surface waters? Are they being transported to the sediments? Are they floating on the water? Are they at the interface of the sediment and the water? Likewise, in the groundwater, where are they going? Are they going deep into the aquifers? After having understood all this, so it's a pretty, you know, you can say linear, but integrated chain, then we move on to devise the treatment methods. Because do not forget one thing that the treatment method has to be tailored as per the concentration of a contaminant at a particular site. I cannot have a, you know, a blanket rule and say that, okay, if there is BTEX in so-and-so site, A, B, C, we can use this method you always first have to go and analyze how much contaminant is present and then what kind of environment is there. That's why, as I spoke earlier about collaborative research, so I need geologists to understand exactly, you know, what kind of aquifer is there, uh, what kind of zone is there for the groundwater so that if I devise a method, how can it be integrated or retrofitted into that particular environment? So this is regarding the water treatment and sanitation. So we work around the entire chain and try to devise the methods 
which would be indirectly linked to our circular economy approach. Remember I said we could produce enzymes and these enzymes are like oxidative compounds since they are of biological origin. So they are more green, lean and clean and used for treating these contaminants in the various water sources. So I think that englobes the SDG 6. It actually answered a little bit of my next question, which is about the 13th SDG, which is climate action. So yeah, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, then... So climate action is tied up into the water treatment as well, and as well into us adding value to those ways. For example, spent grain. Okay, so spent grain when left for composting, given in the Canadian environmental conditions, we have only four months of real composting period here in Canada. Then the composting is slow. It's frozen almost. So in three, four months of composting, uh, not much composting happens. And now if there is no value added to this spent grain, which can easily putrefy during transport, do not forget that it is all grain, okay, and wet grain. So if the wet grain is left over in the environment, what would happen? You would have microbial growth and putrefying odors being produced, as well as you will have the greenhouse gases being added from there. So when we are talking about value addition, you bring that waste from the environment, which would be you know, the waste carbon getting into the environment as carbon dioxide or methane. Now I'm trying to recapture that carbon and transform it into another byproduct which could be useful or recycled back into the industry or could be put to any other use, you know, in our diverse industries. So that way it addresses the climate action because you're reducing the greenhouse gas emissions of the waste which would be lying unused in the environment. So that's how we accomplish the climate action goals in our research. Interesting. So um, to round off, I just want to ask you one last question, which is why do you think World Water Day is such an important day for us to talk about? I think the World Environment Day is important for us because water is essential to all of us. Okay. Whatever nation we come from or whatever nationality, it's the elixir of life. So World Water Day is important to make people understand consciously, you know, how important it is to conserve water where you have it in abundance, for example, in our case in Canada, and as well as for people who do not have enough water, how to use the water that they have in a conservative manner so that you know their day-to-day -day activities are not affected. So I think World Water Day, is, uh, you could say, it's an important day for people to realize that we should not take water for granted. That is absolutely right. And yeah, that's all for today. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Brar. It's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you, Dennis. And up next on the special World Water Day episode, we have Dr. Usman Khan. Welcome, Dr. Usman. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you today. So um, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What exactly do you do here at York? Um, tell us who exactly is Dr. Usman Khan? <laughs> well, I'm an associate professor of civil engineering, and I research different water resources problems. Yeah. This includes things like floods, clean water, in terms of research, just try and make our cities more sustainable, manage our water resources in a more sustainable way, and basically make our cities healthier and happier places to live. Okay, nice. That's very interesting. So my next question for you is, why did you choose civil engineering? And specifically, why did you choose to work in water systems? 
Yeah, I think that's a decision I made a long time ago. Um, I had done a co-op placement after my third year, and it was in a water-focused area, and that really inspired me to continue working in that field, just seeing it's such an important resource, everybody needs it, uh, and I thought it's something I could really make a difference in people's lives. Mm, that's amazing. So could you please describe the big question or um, what the topic that your, the general topic that your research hopes to answer? I work in sort of this specialized area called hydroinformatics. What that means is using a combination of computer science, engineering, to solve some of our most pressing water-related problems. So we use techniques such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and statistics to solve different water problems, whether it's access to clean water, flood risk, or designing water infrastructure in cities. I've also read that you work in predicting flooding. So how can areas be more equipped to handle floods and why is managing floods such an important aspect, especially now as the world is changing and climate change is a growing issue in our world? Yeah, really good question. And I'll start by answering the second part. So okay. we've got both these twin issues of climate change, which can maybe increase the amount of rain we're getting in certain areas uh, and also urbanization, which means our cities are growing. We're mm -hmm. getting more people moving to cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, and both of those things increase our flood risk. If you have more people living in areas where flood occurs, there's a higher chance that people will experience effects of these floods, whether it's damages to buildings or you know, even in severe cases, loss of life. And so because of that, it's really important for us to try and combat these twin challenges. Uh, and we can do this in a number of different ways. It basically comes down to how we design our cities. One way that I'm really excited about is trying to introduce more green spaces in our cities. Uh, and what these green spaces, like rain gardens, do is they capture water after it rains. So rather than the water flowing over land and causing floods, we'll hold that water underground just to prevent floods from happening. Interesting. So when assessing flood risk, what kind of variables do you look at and consider? Yeah, really good question again. Um, often when people look at flood risk, they're really only interested in the amount of damage a flood might cause. If you've got a really expensive piece of infrastructure like a building, you might want to protect it using a combination of techniques. But I think that's missing some of the important aspects when it comes to flood risk. We should also look about who is affected in terms of people, what their demographics are, and how we can design our flood risk protection measures to serve people rather than only focusing on the economic aspects. Nice. So to take us back to the issue of climate change, what would you say is the biggest impact climate change has had on urban water systems as well as flooding? So I think climate change can affect urban water systems in multiple ways. Uh, I think one that gets talked about the most is there's a chance that in the future we'll have more intense rainfall. And what this can do is overwhelm our existing infrastructure. So right now we have a bunch of pipes that are underground that carry water after it rains to the river or lake. However, in the future, if it rains much heavier, then these pipes aren't going to be big enough. So we're mm. going to have to go and replace them or find some other way of managing this extra water. The other aspect of climate change is its effect on the quality of water as well. Uh, we've seen research from across the world where higher temperatures, both in the air and in the water, are leading to degraded water quality, which means water might not be safe to drink or for the ecosystem to survive. And so we have to figure out ways of reducing both these effects to protect our water bodies. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so what impact does urbanization have on flood risk and how does this impact play itself out in the world as we see it today? So urbanization, I'd say, also has two effects when it comes to flooding. 
The first is, if you think of you know, the water cycle, uh, when it rains, some of that water should get captured by plants, some of it will go below the ground, and some of it will travel over land. And with urbanization, every time you put up a new building or a parking lot or a rooftop, we basically seal the surface of the mm. land, so nothing goes below the ground. Everything flows over top, which increases the risk of flooding. The other aspect of urbanization that doesn't get as much attention is that you'll have a lot more people and a lot more infrastructure, a lot more assets being built in areas that are close to flood-prone regions. So if it does flood in an urbanized area, the impacts of it will be much higher in a more remote area. Interesting. So what do you see in your research and findings going on in the near future? Um, I'm working on a bunch of different things. Uh, one of the things I'm quite excited about is building a Canada-wide flood forecasting system powered by the use of artificial intelligence. So I want to build this open access, free-to-use platform where anybody in Canada can go online and see what their flood risk is in real time. That's amazing. There was a recent magazine article published about your research looking at the social aspects of flooding, specifically in the city of Toronto. So could you please talk a little bit more about that and tell us what the article was about for those who are not familiar with it and then what the findings were? Yeah, sure. Um, so that article looked at or developed flood risk maps for a number of different watersheds in Toronto. Okay. Uh, Toronto has quite a few. The Don River watershed, the Humber River watershed, waterfront area. And each of them responds differently when it rains. The Don River watershed is quite urbanized, whereas the Humber River watershed has more of a rural area in the mm -hmm. northern parts. Um, and what these typical flood risk maps show us is where there's a high chance of a flood to occur. And it tells you which areas, you know, a red area signifies a high risk. And therefore, if you want to go invest with infrastructure to protect your assets, you know where to go based on these maps. Uh, but one of the things we did was we sort of overlaid this flood hazard with socio and economic effects of floods. So we looked at uh, who is living in these neighborhoods, what their demographics are, what the environmental effects of flooding are in these regions. And so we sort of overlapped all of these different types of data sets to highlight not only areas that have, say, a high risk of floods, but also a high impact. And they're not always the same areas. So it allows us to make better decisions in the sense that you don't want to invest a lot of money protecting an area from floods if nobody lives there, right? So by looking at these different factors that affect floods in the city of Toronto, we can figure out who to protect or who is at most need to be protected from floods. Okay. And what I can say is what I really like about your work is that it looks not only at the economic cost, but at the human and social cost, which I feel like tends to be overlooked a lot in some of this work. So yeah, I really appreciate that. So I want to talk a little bit about World Water Day. Seeing as World Water Day is a day made by the UN, I think it's appropriate that we talk about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. As I'm sure you're aware that the UN SDGs are very important to Lassonde, um, creating a positive change in developing strategies and solutions to global changes are what Lassonde is about at the very core. Well, I know your work ties into a few of them, so I'm going to go through one by one. <laughs> so the first one being clean water and sanitation. How does your work tie into the sixth SDG goal, which is clean water and sanitation? Um, so before I begin, I, was, I would just say that, yeah, I agree that the SDGs are really important to Lausanne. I think it's important for engineering education to be linked to these goals, uh, just to give students an idea of um, what future impact they can have by mm -hmm. focusing on these goals. Um, SDG number six mm -hmm. is clean water. 
And I'm working on a project related to this goal, which is about ensuring that people in refugee camps across the world have access to clean water. Uh, in a lot of refugee camps, you don't have piped water distribution systems mm. like we do in the cities. You can't just go to a, a tap in your room or in your bathroom and uh, get clean water. Mm. Typically, you have to go to centralized areas mm. to collect water in buckets and bring mm -hmm. it back to your home. Mm. Uh, and this process of collecting water and bringing it home, um, I guess, creates a risk of making the water unsafe. And what we've done is um, collected a whole bunch of data from different refugee camps uh, to try and see if we can optimize how much the water should be treated to account for this uh, transport of water from the tap to the household because that's where we see a big decay or decrease in water quality. So the next one um, is the 11th one, which is sustainable cities and communities. How does your work tie into this goal? So one of the targets for this goal is to increase access to green spaces in our cities. Uh, and this relates to some of my work uh, on flood risk. As I mentioned before, green spaces, parks, rain gardens, etc., can be used to mitigate some of the effects of climate change and flooding in particular. And what I'm doing is I'm trying to strategically understand where we need to install more of these green spaces in our cities, not only to maximize their benefits in terms of flood risk reduction, but also to increase access to people to make sure we have a good distribution of green spaces across the city uh, and make sure that everyone has, you know, sort of an equal access to them. That's amazing. So the 13th is climate action. How does your work tie into this climate action? Um, so one of the big effects of climate change is natural hazards like floods. Mm -hmm. So that is a, a big component of what I do. Um, one of the projects I'm working on is trying to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to help create flood forecasting models. This will allow us to be able to predict when a natural hazard like floods are about to happen, say okay. a day in advance or a week in advance, so that we can inform people, communities, you know, the risk is high, you need to evacuate, or other things need to be done. So my work ties into the climate action goal through my work on flood risk. So before I let you go, I just want to ask you one last pertinent question. What do you think is the significance of World Water Day? What do you think the importance is? World Water Day is really good for raising awareness, and I think it can inspire students who want to make a positive change in the world. A lot of people, when they think of civil engineering, don't think about water. They'll think about buildings and roads and bridges, but it is something uh, that's quite integral to our profession as well, and something I'm very passionate about. Um, Canada has a lot of water. I mean, that's something that mm. we get taught when we're really young, um, but I think it's easy to take it granted. We do have access to lots of fresh water, but a lot of that is actually in remote areas that's inaccessible. Um, our cities are growing quite rapidly as well. We're getting more people into cities. So all of this will put stress on our water resources. Climate change will affect us as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. We had an amazing time having you here on our special Water Day episode of This is the Sound. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us on the special episode for World Water Day. I hope you learned something new about why we need to work together to sustainably manage this precious resource and the amount of work and research that goes into developing, improving and maintaining Canada's water systems. I think it's important that we reflect on all the ways that we use water and why we sometimes take it for granted. Until next time, thank you for joining us on This is the Sound.